Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of Life Origami podcast, where we do a series of interviews in the current series uh, and talking about how to make 2021 count for the business you love. Today, we have a guest that is already 13 years in entrepreneurship. He's a computer programmer that believes that we should be building our passion rather than pursuing building the business from our passion. That's a very interesting topic we will be discovering today. He bootstrapped multiple seven and six figure online businesses. He's a speaker, a podcaster, and a just fantastic, energetic person. Ray, give your intro, please. Hey, Alan, thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, um, yeah, I'm calling in from Mexico today and I'm kind of excited to have a few days off for the holidays. I usually work all year round, about 50, 60 hours a week. So an excuse to take off two or three days doesn't come, come around that often. So I'm kind of excited. I bet, especially when you're building multiple businesses at the same time. All right. I'm launching two ones, two new ones in January, right? So this is kind of my calm before the storm. Super. Well, we'll get a couple of notes about them as well in today's talk. So today's interview is divided in several uh, processes where we talk about life balance, goals, business, self-awareness, and much more to get people to know what are you about, what is your business about, as well as get some golden nuggets about what was your journey like and some wisdom and practices that help you to actually be productive as you are, right? It's, it's an, I believe that's not an easy task to run multiple businesses at the same time. Uh, you need a powerful foundation for that. You need a support network. And we're going to talk all about that today. So, right, tell us a little bit about your background and where you're from. Yeah, so where I'm from is a little, you know, most people say, oh, that's an easy question. I was born here and I grew up here. Yeah, no, that's not with me. So let's see, I was born in the Philippines. My mom's from the Philippines. My dad's from the United States, but he grew up in Africa in Rhodesia. Uh, it's called Zimbabwe now. Uh, and I grew up in Istanbul, Turkey. So from zero to 15 years of age, I lived in Istanbul, Turkey, high school and college. And then I moved into you know, computer programming, did some work. And finally, I ended up moving to Mexico where I met my wife and I've been living for the last 10 years. So I have multiple passports. I have never lived in one country for more than a little over a decade. So, wow. have you, you know, I call myself American because that's what I sound like when I speak English. <laughs> wow. that That's a truly international background, right? So um, in, in terms of keeping productive, right? And having that kind of uh, international business going on, um, how do you find yourself in the realm of being a night person or a morning person? I am lightly a morning person. I'm not going to say, you know, there's some people who are much more extreme, right? They're like, I wake up at 4 a.m. and I get everything done. Or I stay up until 3 a.m. and I get everything done. I'm nothing that extreme. I go to bed at 10 and wake up at 6 every day. Wow. Okay. Um, it's a stable, so a stable ritual? It is for me. I have an 11 month. He, he doesn't quite appreciate it as much before, you know, but for years I have been on that almost exactly. I'm not even tired until 955. And then at 10 o'clock, I fall asleep. I mean, wow. my body's that and I, I don't need an alarm to wake up at 6am. My body, you know, if I try sleeping in, I'll make it to 630. Was, what, was there sleep. something that got you to this regime? Or was it a natural transition? Or how did that happen? It was a natural transition, but it's very conscious right now. I am very much a person of habit and rituals. I mean, I do the same things 
every night before I go to bed, I do the same thing. I have a ritual in the morning. Um, if you've ever read the Miracle Morning by Hal Elrod, I don't do all of it, but I do def I do certain parts of it. Um, I have a ritual every morning that I go through, which involves a little bit of meditation. It, I write my manifesto. Um, and then I do a few stretching exercises, partially for health, partially because I have chronic back problems. It's, mm -hmm. it's a nice to start the day by loosening up your back, right? But going into this ritual every morning when I go to bed, it's the same thing. I always read an hour of science fiction or fantasy novels before going to bed. Not business books, because I'm not trying to get my mind activated at that point. I'm trying to kind of tell my body, it's time to relax. It's time to go to bed. This is some kind of thing, brainless thing that, you know, helps me relax, that I enjoy, that's not work-related. I do that every single night. doesn't matter if it's the weekend um, or the weekday. I always read one hour before going to bed every single night. Um, and that helps mm. my body. Your body remembers that stuff, right? It trains it. You wake up. It knows that you read for an hour. It's time to go to bed. I don't have to tell my body that. And it knows 6 a.m., you wake up. Um, so, Interesting. Yeah, I've been and doing this for years. Uh, about reading, like, basically, you finish up the whole day. So... Uh, even like let's look at the regime in terms of achieving that system right mm -hmm. to be able to go to sleep at nine you need to finish up the work finish up the house stuff finish with your kids and everything all all the things in at the house and in the work how do you do that how do you manage we build our life around that. So mm. to clarify, me and my wife work together, right? Um, in Live Lingua. I have other businesses she's not involved in, but we work together at Live Lingua. That's a slight advantage we have because we plan our days around each other. Um, part of the discussions of the work-life balance that people always talk about, but I don't think there's much of a separation. And especially when you work with your spouse, there is no separation. Uh, you know, there is no, we're at work. We work at home. So when am I at the office? When am I at work? When, you know, I talk to my wife about work. I talk to my work about life. It's the same thing. It's all part of my life. Mm. Um, so that helps a lot. The hack that I have for you, you know, especially with a child, that's like the big unknown. They don't read my Google calendar. They, they don't know, you know, that he doesn't really care about those kind of things. It's we move to countries where we can afford to hire help. So if I lived in the United States or in the UK or something like that, this would, you know, doing a lot of this stuff would not be feasible. But if you move to Latin America or even parts of Europe that are cheaper and you're still able to make an income from your main country, you can hire a nanny, you can hire, you know, a cook, you can hire people to help you around the house, which give you the freedom mm -hmm. to work on where your time is most valuably spent, right? My time is not most valuably spent making dinner. Um, I'm a mediocre cook. I mean, I, I can fry a steak and boil some rice, but you know, I'm a mediocre cook. We have somebody who helps us do that. And that gives mm. us the freedom to have more control over our schedule. Mm, very interesting. We'll get into a little bit of self-care and habits uh, when, while we move on. Uh, let's talk about passion, right? Uh, so you are building a business that you're super passionate about. And um, tell us what is it? And, uh, you know, there... One part of the question was like, what keeps you up at night, but you have a regime 10 o'clock dead end. <laughs> it's, it's night, it's sleep. So uh, tell us about what gets you engaged during the day. Uh, what gets you pumped up and uh, what gets you to wake up 6am and love life? I love what I do. So and this is, you know, we had the pre-interview and we were talking about this before. My passion is not necessarily the product, right? It's not what I'm selling. It's the process of creating a business out of whatever this product is. So, you know, my main business, LiveLingua.com, is one of the world's largest online language schools. 
I enjoy learning languages, but I would never say I'm passionate about it. My wife is. She's a language teacher and, you know, she's my business partner there. But I love the creativity of building this business. I built Twidgicate. It's a social network for schools. Um, same thing. Uh, you know, it was just about the journey of building it. The way I describe it is, like we talked about, it's not following your passion. None of these were my passion. It was building your passion. Become good at something and that becomes your passion. Um, and that's what kind of gets me up every morning. I think, and I'm no psychologist, the reason behind it is I come from a fam family of academics and artists. So, you know, they were all about writing books or painting or, you know, making music and all the rest of it. I'm the black sheep. I'm an engineer, right? I mean, you know, I just totally went out of there and, but I still think I have some of that in me. So I studied engineering and that's what I did it. And then I found business and I found that this is my canvas. Email funnels is one of my paints and, you know, SEO is another one and computer engineering to build websites are different mediums I can use to create this piece of art, which happens to generate an income. So that's what I do. That's kind of what I love doing. I don't, I tell people I would build an e-commerce store that sold, you know, donkeys. I mean, you know, it doesn't matter to me. I, as long as the, I think the business would work, I would have fun doing it, even though I am not passionate about donkeys at all. They're, they're fine. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I don't care. So that's an interesting look. As, as you say, we've talked about this idea. And um, one of the things I was uh, also looking at, like uh, business is a tool for self-realization, right? And um, when we were talking and the idea you're sharing is that not building a business around your passion, but what if you are? What if the process is your passion? And it doesn't matter what business it is, the, but the process is the passion, right? So it, it really doesn't matter what is the nuance, like as we, we've discussed, like the idea that it doesn't matter uh, from a perspective that you are, for example, as you gave like a tennis person, right? And you build a business around tennis and uh, not necessarily you need to be a business person to achieve that and, and all that ideas. But what if your core passion is actually putting together a process of building a business and Absolutely. seeing that business succeed? Absolutely. The difference of, however, of following a passion and building a passion is that wasn't my passion when I started. It wasn't that I love building businesses. Let me go out and do it. I think other people, though, saw that in me when I was a kid, because I was that kid. If you'd asked anybody when I was 10, all my classmates, 10, 12, 15, 18 years old, who's going to run a business? They'd all say, right. That wasn't even on my radar. It didn't even, I was like, no, no, no. What are you talking about? I'm going to study computer programming and I'm going to be a computer programmer. I'm going to make computer games. Um, I later <laughs> on discovered that making computer games is not that much fun. I mean, you know, it, it's fun to play, but it's not fun to actually do. Um, but I think so that kernel was in me, but I had to actually build it in order for me to kind of come to that self-realization that that was my passion. If I had never followed entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship would never have become a passion mm. for me, right? Mm. Becoming passionate about anything takes work. Um, you know, even if you like something, it's not really a passion yet until you become good at it, in my opinion. I've never been passionate about something I'm awful about. I'm awful at. I mean, you know, you've never seen that really bad painter, and I'm, I'm one of them, you know, being passionate about painting. Or at least they think they're a really good painter, at least. They might be a bad one, but at least in their own mind, they're a really good one. That's requirement for being you know, for having passion in something. So I think you have to work for it. I, that's one of the reasons I think a lot of people who follow their fashion, their passion um, fall down and don't get back up again because mm -hmm. they realize that, okay, it was a passion in this part of my life, in my personal life, right? It's a mm -hmm. hobby. I love this, but it's not a passion in this other part of my life, which is work. 
because you know again tennis playing let's go to it i love let's say like i love playing tennis i'm really good at playing tennis but building a tennis business is not about you playing tennis all day it's about you doing accounting and marketing and running staff and all the rest of it you might not be passionate about that and you'll you know you'll tennis becomes a chore playing tennis becomes a chore because of all this other stuff around it that's just killing your passion for tennis because mm. you're like oh, i gotta market it now so i gotta true. take a video of myself playing tennis um so i think people look at it the wrong way you can have passions in different parts of your life and some passions are better kept in those silos right in those personal in hobby silo right in the hobby silo exactly exactly yeah. Beautiful. That's that's. I, I believe that for many who are hearing this idea right now, um, they need to recalibrate, especially in 2021. What is their hobby, and what should be their let's so call it business or a private practice or being self-employed in some direction, and evaluate what do you have to do in the business and in the tasks that you want to engage into like actually discovering what it takes to do that right in the first mm -hmm. place and understanding do you see yourself there in five or ten years doing that same thing as a routine that's that's a beautiful remark there um, let's talk about the businesses that you've built up and how did you find yourself in there one of them i said is the language school that was your or wife's passion and you helped her to build that out what else do you do okay so yeah so our biggest business was we've actually built two language schools with my wife the first one was a chain of brick and mortar language schools in mexico so we that's how we started right i'm a computer engineer but for some reason building an online business was not the first thing that occurred to me when we launched business it was more traditional let's rent a building and let's you know put furniture in there and hire staff and all the rest of it so that's the first business we did it was successful we sold that in 2012 The second business we launched was LiveLingua.com. Um, we launched this while we were running the brick and mortar school as well. So there was some overlap. Uh, and we've still been running that now for going on 13 years. We are, you know, number three language school in the world. We're the only one that has no, does not have at least $10 million in venture capital. All of our competitors have at least $10 million in investment. Wow. We bootstrapped for $59.99. Uh, that's how much we invested to start our business. Um, how long have was you one been year that for? We've been growing that now for 13 years. So wow. that's the reason we're able to compete, right? Um, we're the kind of slow. We don't need to be like a lot of those invest those companies that invest. You know, they come. We've had a lot of people come and go over the years, right? They get five, 10 million. They come up. They're bigger than us. And then they disappear because they're not growing at the speed their investors want. Mm, that, um, you know, if, you, if somebody invested $20 million, you better be making them back $200 million. Otherwise, they're not happy, right? They're not looking to make back $21 million. Uh, how long, like for the perspective, so everyone out there understands like what it truly takes in in amount of time to build a sustainable, long-term, profitable business. Tell us the time frame where, where that happened. Great question. And I'll start with another question people ask me all the time. They ask me, Ray, you should write a book on how to bootstrap location-independent online businesses, right? Something that allows you to travel and make a good income. And I jokingly tell people that, yeah, if I wrote the book, it would be called Seven Figures in Seven Years, and nobody would buy it because it took us exactly seven years to make this a seven-figure business. Mm -hmm. Now, seven-figure does not mean net. I, we did not make, you know, we don't take home, we still don't take home seven figures a year in profit, but it to grow seven figures, it took us seven years to bootstrap up to that. It was a long slog. We worked every day. 
Um, it took about five years to get to the point where we were making more money than we would have made working for somebody else. Um, I'm a computer engineer. My wife's a bilingual teacher. If we went back to the U.S., we'd probably be making multi-six figures. You know, I programmer probably 150 grand and my wife would make 60, 70 as a teacher. It took us, yeah, five years to make more than that. Mm. working the business. So for those five years, we made less than we would have made working for somebody else in a stable job. That's the, a lot of the, my friends who have built similar businesses and they bootstrapped it or started with very little investment. They have similar stories. Um, and if you even look at some of the big ones like Facebook and Apple and all the rest of it, it sounds like they were overnight successes, but you read like the timeline on those and, you know, really, you know, Mark Zuckerberg started Facebook when he was in college and we didn't even hear about it for like 12 years later. I mean, you know, it didn't become a household name for another decade. So it was just like bit by bit and they did get investment. So it would have taken even longer for them to get up there. But even with millions and hundreds of millions in investment, it took us 10 years before we were talking about Facebook, Mm -hmm. you know, in in our homes. So I think that's another reason why people lose it because there's too many marketers out there selling build your million dollar e-commerce dropship store in 30 days and yeah that's what people expect yet, and it yet, doesn't work yet it's possible right uh, there there are systems and if you got what it takes right is it's a matter of as well what is your potential and knowing yourself having that self-awareness do you have the needed skills to pull that off and it's possible to build that and then grow a business make money and then potentially in time, if something goes bad, pivot and do something else. But that demands understanding what's your core talent, right? And it also is constant self-improvement. Um, mm-hmm. There are actually studies out there that show that, you know, successful, this level of success in business has almost a direct correlation to the level of time that people put into self-improvement. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll never find... I don't know the study, but you can Google it. Anybody can just Google it online. They've actually done the studies of how many hours you know, top CEOs read new business books or take new courses versus somebody who doesn't. And it's not even close. And they're, you know, they've done this across all these different fields. You know, the top doctors take more training, the top in any field, they take more training and they study and they self-improve. That's one of the things you need. And just like building a business that takes time, you're not going to go away for a weekend and learn everything there is to know about marketing, business, accounting, all the rest of it. You have to just every week I read, I'm not, you know, I'm no Bill Gates who reads a book every hour or something like that, but I read a new business book, complete a new business book every week and a half to two weeks. Mm. And it, I've been doing it for six or seven years now. So you kind of do the math and I've, most of the famous ones I've read, some of the unknown ones I've read. And I even start reading now books that aren't even business because you start, you want to, to build your business, you can actually expand your knowledge in other areas. I just read a book on like the basic astrophysics for people who don't have time by Neil deGrasse Tyson. I just finished that. Absolutely nothing to do with business, but it's kind of, I'm trying to improve myself by learning more. How do you, do you keep uh, able, like, okay, you read one hour before going to sleep. Uh, do you optimize the time to read a book through uh, listening or you just read? No, I listen generally for the business books. I listen. I, so I work out every day. Um, I do go to the gym and I'm usually listening to a book because if anybody's worked out, it's usually go hard for 30 seconds to a minute and then take one or two minutes break in between. That's the time when you can be listening to your book. So you kind of optimize your time in mm. order to do it. Mm. Mm. I have, I have a, an app on my phone, just a little notepad. And I just write down little notes from the book that I hear so I can go back to it. Because I'll be honest, if you're listening to a book while you're at the gym, you're not going to get all the details, right? My idea is just to get a general overview of the concept. And if I like anything specifically, I'll go and listen to it again when I'm back in the house and mm. take notes about it. I'm like, so that you, was really you take good. small notes of where to go back and That's then re-listen. It. 
that's that's, that's really exactly good. it. I'm like, okay, minute four, you know, chapter three, minute forty second or forty three seconds into it, go back and listen to that part again. It's about thirty seconds long, and I put a little note. It's about oh, that's this. a nice hack. That's a nice hack. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's the that's the two businesses. What else are you doing? So I have a lot of small side businesses that you know don't make more than a hundred, two hundred dollars a month, and I just keep them running. But the two main things that I'm working on right now is I'm launching two businesses. I alluded to it before in January, one on purpose, one by accident. Um, so I'll start with the accidental business. So I'm I'm launching an e-commerce store in January, selling uh, products to make your to- for your toilet. So toilet seats, toilets, bathroom, uh, toilet paper holders, scales, all the rest of it. This happened by accident. So what happened was I have a network of entrepreneurs I know. I've been mentoring some people. And one of the kids that I was, I'm calling him a kid because he's like 18. But you know, one of the ones I was in touch with, he created a calculator back in March called howmuchtoiletpaper.com which just told people how much toilet paper they needed to survive COVID, right? He was like, this was just a joke. He just threw it up there and he did it. It went viral. Um, You know, it got 15 million visits in the month of March. 15 million people crashed the server. He was interviewed by, um, I think it's called Cloud Cloudcast. Uh, It's one of those CDN uh, content distribution networks, right? Because his they helped his website survive they gave him like free service it would have cost him like twenty fifty thousand dollars just to keep it up and running with the number of traffic but just for marketing they're like we'll do it for you for free just have us on your show and talk about it right um and in that time it got thousands of people linking to it for those of you who aren't familiar with what links mean in online business a link is a vote and the more votes you have the higher you rank in google it's something called search engine optimization he got more links to that website than I built a live lingua in 10 years in 30 days. <laughs> so, you know, I was talking to him and he's like, you know, he, he has a job with one of a fortune 50 company when he graduates. And he's like, I don't really have time to build a business. I have a good, I have a great job coming up. And what do I do with this? I'm like, oh, I'll pay you for it. Um, it made no money. Right. So most people would not buy it, but I'm like, oh, I can put a business on there. I, you, you have mm. the, you know, the SEO, I just need to put a business on there. And so I spent about three months thinking, what should I do? What should I do? What should I do? And then eventually I came to, hey, I've always wanted to try e-commerce. So let's put up a toilet store. Uh, you know, a, a store with how much toilet paper? It had to be in the toilet somewhere. Um, and so I'm like, let's throw that up there. So the e-commerce store is launching in January. Uh, and we're going to be selling primarily smart toilet products. So smart toilet seats, smart scales, smart mirrors, um, smart, to- smart trash cans. Uh, they have all this stuff now for your, you know, Mm-hmm. for your bathroom so we're going to be selling it there that launches in january that was by accident Th- that's that a cool planned. story that's a cool story yeah yeah so uh, but if it works i'm going to be you know i'd like to expand i want to build a team around this and then i want to expand into e-commerce and have multiple stores at the same team running it because the business process mm-hmm. is the same once you have it down the second thing i'm launching this was on purpose is a website called podcasthawk.com podcast h-a-w-k the animal.com the story behind this is most of my businesses are come around with the same origin story. Pretty much I look for something on Google because I need it and I can't find it or I don't find a good one. So I'm like, eh, I might as well build that myself. That's Podcast Hawk's origin story. So the story here was I was looking to promote live lingua, find a new way to get, you know, customers to take language lessons with us in live lingua. So I'm like, I should appear on podcasts. I've had podcasts myself in the past. As you'll know, Alan, it's a lot less work to be on a podcast than it is to actually do the podcast. You have to find guests, you have to research all the rest of it. So I'm like, let me get on podcasts. And then I started searching. I'm like, 
there's no real good way of doing this. You can't go to iTunes and Stitcher and search for podcasts to get interviewed on. It doesn't work that way. Their search functionality is awful. And it doesn't let you search by interviews or who's active or give you any contact information. So I went to Google. I'm like, let me Google podcast to appear on. Yeah, that doesn't work either. I went out and said, there must be services for this. Yes, there are. There's agents you can pay. And they said, yeah, for $3,000, I'll get you on five podcasts. And I'm like, I'm not going to pay $3,000 to get on five podcasts. I mean, we're not talking like, you know, Joe Rogan or anything like that, right? These are different levels of podcasts. If I just send them an email, I could probably get on. They just do the work of sending an email. So I'm like, look, there's got to be a better way to do this. So I spent that weekend. I'm like, okay, I'm a computer engineer. How would I do it? Can I get all the podcasts off of iTunes and Stitcher into a database? Spent a weekend. I'm like, yes, it's physically possible. I didn't get them all in a weekend. There are millions of podcasts, but I determined it's physically possible for me to go out there and get them. Is it possible for me to get all their contact information? Spent a weekend. I'm like, yeah, it's physically possible. So that was it. So I started launching it. This was back in March. We should be launching in January, maybe February. We might have to push our launch back 30 days. There's a few little things we're trying to iron out. It's, it's software and everything. It never quite works quite as quickly as you plan. <laughs> um, but the basic idea what we have here in Podcast Talk is we've simplify the entire process. So instead of you having to search everything, you can go into podcast talk, you create your account and you can go in there and say, Hey, I want to be on business podcasts that have at least 50 episodes. So I want something that's been around for at least a year. Mm -hmm. They've created a new episode in the last 90 days. So I know they're still active Mm -hmm. and they've mentioned the word toilets in their, in any episode description at some point, because I'm trying to promote my toilet paper store. Right? So you just, instead of having to search Google for hours, days, or months, you just hit search and two or three seconds will give you every podcast that matches that criteria. And we have Super. tons of other criteria you can search from. You hit, okay, that's it. You clean up the list, hit campaign, and you create an email outreach and we kind of automate it a little bit for you. You hit save, you're done. And we, depending on your plan, we'll send out you know, 10, 25, or 50 emails a day to these people. I did a test run generally on cold email outreach. You, if you get one to 3% of the people to reply to you, that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I got 34% of the people to reply to me. So it really backfired. I was on a lot of travel podcasts for, for the last three months because all of them answered me, but it also proved this system does work. I have some friends mm-hmm. using it right now and they're having on alpha testing and they're having some success as well. Super. It's, it's like, it's the same thing. Like, Podcasts are growing, same as influencer marketing is growing. So uh, we we needed aggregators of influencers, and now you're doing the aggregators for podcasts. Genius, exactly, wonderful, exactly. So, all right. Uh, anything else bubbling up? Those are the main ones. I try. I'm, I'm trying to limit myself now because, like all entrepreneurs out there, you know the whole shiny object syndrome. Yeah, I, I need to focus on these businesses for the next two, three years. All of them have great potential, more potential than a lot of my other ideas I've ever had. Um, I'm luckily in a position with live lingua that I don't have to worry about like rent or, mm. you know, these, these businesses, every penny I make on them for the next two or three years, I'm anticipating is going to be invested back into either staffing or, you know, into the systems. It's not going to be going into my pocket. Oh, that's an interesting topic. Let's touch upon it for a little mm. bit. Uh, the idea of reinvesting into the business, the money that you're making, do you have a certain uh, maybe scheme, a formula or advice for business owners and entrepreneurs that are building a business, many of them perceive uh, their business pocket as their own pocket. And (laughs) how would you approach it? What kind of advice can you give? A great question. And you're absolutely right. When I give talks, I've been lucky enough to give some talks at some conferences. A lot of people ask me that. And I tell people, if you're taking every penny that you make and spending it, you don't have a business, you have a hobby. 
Um, because literally one thing goes wrong and you're not going to survive a month or two because there's absolutely no savings in that business whatsoever, right? That being said, when you're starting off, you actually do need the money to survive. So there are two sides to it. First, figure out your main, you know, your minimum livable income and make that your salary. That's your salary at the business. That's what you pay yourself. If the business doesn't make enough to pay you, you make less salary this month, but if it makes more, you don't get any more. It's not like, hey, we had a great month. It's, you know, I don't know, uh, Black Friday. So this month was great. Yeah, that's not how it works. You still make whatever your salary was for that month. Um, at least in the beginning, keep that up in your business. Later on, you can add something called dividends, right? Where you go either quarterly by twice a year or once a year. And you say, I'm taking 30% off of the profit that we made this year, 50% of the profit we're making this year. I wouldn't pass 50%. Um, of the profit I'm taking. So I get my salary plus I get 50% of the profit annually. That works out pretty well because you kind of even out over the month. So if you have high and low months, you don't get you know a lot of money on the high months and nothing on the low months. It evens itself out. That's general. That's the system that I use in my businesses. Mm-hmm. For the new businesses, as I mentioned, I'm not even taking a salary. I'm looking at these as investments. Um, I'll only take dividends mm-hmm. and I'm not going to be making any money. I don't plan on making money for about two years because again, I need staff. I need more features. I need all the rest of it. Mm. It'll grow more quickly when you're doing it that way. All right. Do you plan any um, investments uh, as well from the profits that you make? How, how do you manage that in, in just light touch? Oh, well, I could go more light touch. I actually like this. I just don't generally get to talk about it. So my dad also worked in finance for a while. Um, my investment is I'm not... I'm kind of aggressive, but not in the traditional sense. So if anybody's looking to learn the basics about investment, read a book called The Random Walk Down Wall Street. That's pretty Mm. much the only book you ever need to read um, on investments. And it pretty much tells you the safe way to do things. I know some friends who are much more aggressive investors and they won't agree. But historically, you know, if you try investing in stocks, only like 10% of the people or something like that are able to beat the market. So bet on the market is what we do. So my investment is pretty conservative. I do something what in the US is called a 401k, in my case, an I-401k, individual 401k. And I'm able to put away money into that. And I diversify about 70% stocks, um, 30% bonds, and the stocks are all index funds. So I do as well as the market does. Traditionally, that's 7% a year. Like always, it doesn't sound like much, but I think it was Einstein who said, you know, the most powerful force in the universe is like compounding math or something like that, right? Just do 7% times 7% times 7% on $100,000 for 50 years. And you'll be very pleasantly surprised at how much money is going to be in your bank account when you're done, right? So we do that. And we do something called dollar cost averaging, which means you just, it's a fancy way of saying we put aside like a salary. We have a certain amount that goes in every single month. I don't care if the stocks are up or down. I'm not trying to beat it the first of every month. I buy X number of stocks in my investment fund and, you know, diversify Mm. it across. And we do that. And then once a year, you do something called rebalancing, just to kind of re-even your stocks. Sometimes your stocks will do better than your bonds. So you're trying to do 70%, 30%. But by the end of the year, it's 75%, 25%, right? But something did really well. So you sell 5%, you buy bonds. So you're back to 70, 30. And you do that once a year. That's it. And you, I can, so you consistently do that for 30 years. You'll have a few million dollars in the bank. I mean, anybody who's making an okay salary will have a few million dollars in the bank. How, much, how much of the percentage of the income that you make you put into investments? So with the 401k, at least you're limited. Um, if you have something called an I-401k, it's up to 20% of your income up to a maximum $55,000. So if you make $10 million, you can't put more than 55,000, right? That's kind of the limit, but it's tax-free. I mean, you know, you don't pay taxes before you put it in. Um, 
we can get more complicated with a Roth, which means you pay mm-hmm. taxes before and all the rest of it. But that's generally how much money you can put into that. If you don't, if a, you have a traditional savings account, uh, like a traditional 401k, I believe the limit's about twelve dollars or $13,000 a year. So it's $1,000 a month. But don't let that sound bad to you because most people do not put away $1,000 a month into exactly. any kind of retirement fund everywhere. Exactly. Um, do that for, you know, if you're not... This might not be a good plan if you're listening to this and you're 55 and 60 and you need to retire in five years. Maybe not for you. But if you have at least you know, 10, 20, 30, ideally 40, if, you're like, if somebody's listening to this and they're 21, they can start now. Woo, I wish I had put more money when I was 21 in there because I pro- I'm 40. I'd probably be retired right now or be, you know, be financially independent. I did not. I spent it on a BMW and getting drunk Thursday, Friday, and Saturday nights at the bar. Uh, so you know, I wish I really hadn't done that. Uh, but I think we have to pass through that phase in our 20s. Yeah, interesting insights. Thank you. Um, let's look at having a busy, like a really busy lifestyle. We have, uh, let's say, I like to say four major things in life. We have business, we have family, we have self-care, as well as we need to constantly learn and develop. How do you manage in your life to keep that balance? Mm-hmm. So about a month or two ago, somebody asked me what my superpower was and it took me a little while to figure it out. And then unfortunately I figured it out and it's the most boring superpower known to man. And it's discipline. That's how I balance it. I mean, literally, so the story behind kind of exactly discovering what that is was I was at a conference with a small conference, like 15, 20 people. And one of the activities they had, they give us all these little post-it notes and they're like, okay, write out your typical day and on each post-it note, put up one activity, right? when you wake up, what do you do? I'm like, oh, this is kind of a weird exercise, but let's do it. So I put my head down, you know, 6 a.m., wake up, you know, 6.15, coffee, 6.30, meditation. So you said, you know, I just worked my way through the day. So I, I did that for about five minutes. I look up and I start looking around the room. There's about 30 or 40 people in there. And everybody's like, huh, I don't know what my typical day is like. My days are all different and it depends and all the rest. I was kind of confused. So I go up to the wall and you're supposed to, you, you know, we had the walls, you put up all your stuff on there. And I had my like 30 things in the day. And then the, the moderator for the room came. I was like, Ray, is this what you do every single day? I'm like, yeah, this is just like, you know, nine to nine 30, I check emails. Then, you know, I do this, this is deep work. It's exactly the same every day. My days are boring. That, that's when I kind of started to realize that discipline was my superpower because that's what I do. I wake up every day and I do exactly the same things. And this goes back to answering your question of how I balance it. I, I am very strict about my times. When I say my day, I stop working at six o'clock. That's it. I'm done working at six o'clock from six to nine. It's time for the family. How do that's you do that? It's, how? You tell yourself I don't work after six and you're done. That's it. It's only, it's self-control. It's not like, ugh. I have to do this extra 30 minutes. There's two things for it. One, I work from eight to six. So I work about 10 hours a day. Studies show that actually after 55 hours of work a week, you know, so I do five hours more than is recommended, but they say after 55 hours, your your productivity goes down to like 40% of what it should be. Right. So that last hour or that last 30 minutes, you're actually doing like an extra seven minutes of work, you know, 10 minutes of work max. Really? Do you think you're moving your business ahead that much? And chances are you're so tired. You're probably gonna have to redo that work the next day. There is almost nothing that's going to happen in that last 30 minutes of every day, that last hour of every day that is going to make a massive difference to mm. your business. But if spending an extra hour or two with your family, yeah, that's absolutely going to make a massive difference in your life. I don't work on the weekends. Same thing. Exactly the same thing. I don't answer emails. I'll check them, but I will not answer them unless it's like, yeah, your server blew up. Yeah, I'm like, man, that's an emergency. I got to go there and get that up. But 
that's never happened. Um, so, you know, generally speaking, I don't work on the weekends either. It's all discipline. You stick to it. If you plan out well, I plan out my two weeks in detail, but I plan out my years as well. You know, as far as what our goals are triannual, I do every four month goals. I know what I can do. I've been doing it for years. So it's very rare that something comes along that kind of comes out of nowhere and just throws that scheme off. I'm not going to say it never happens, but if you are disciplined about every single thing, about your emails, about your work, about your life, about your exercise, about your meditation, you let the people in your life know that um, and let them know I'm doing this for you guys, right? I'm working till six. They don't bother me until six, but at six, I'm yours. I mean, you know, whatever you guys need, I'm there for you. That has helped me a lot in my work-life balance. I would love to get to see if, if you don't mind. Um, I would love, I think many listeners would also be interested in seeing it. Can you provide an outline? I want to put it into the description or somehow, what is your typical, like, what is your schedule like so that others can understand? Because it's a great example of a system that is working a year and a year out. It provides you stable results. It enables you to be with your family, taking care of yourself, taking care of the business, and it's growing and it's working. Mm -hmm. I believe that this system uh, deserves a spotlight. And um, <laughs> we're going to talk about a little bit more uh, on how it functions in the following questions. So uh, let's look at the idea of uh, actually making decisions and setting prior priorities, right? Mm -hmm. You mentioned you're working from eight or six. Uh, it's a really long time. We heard many studies that uh, say that we actually have only four productive hours a day of real productive time. Everything else is mm -hmm. just busy work. Um, how do you set your priorities? How do you make decisions? Absolutely. And, you know, this is always a hit or miss in a learning experience, right? There's nobody out there who sets the perfect priorities and yeah, only does the stuff that's important in their business. That's unfortunately a dream a lot of us follow, but I, I, I'm not going to pretend I've cracked that code and I always get the priorities right. But I get them right more often than I get them wrong. But that's a lot of it is experience. So we start with a higher level. It's, you know, you ask yourself, why am I doing all of these things? We talked about, you know, building the passion. So I do enjoy it. But this is all building towards something. And the backstory for me, at least, it sounds callous. I'm doing it for money. Um, not because I want to spend it. Not because I want to have expensive stuff. But growing up, I always felt like the poorest person in my class. And it somehow hit me. And I, the, the biggest worry in my life, I'm like, you know, I'm lucky to be healthy and, you know, in a happy relationship is always been money. It's how am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to pay my bills? I still think about that today, even though when I, you look at it objectively, unless I start buying Ferraris every single day for the next, you know, two months, it's, you know, we're not going to run out. It's, it's just, I never want to have to worry about it. I don't want to, you know, the big, uh, those big stresses, for example, our car broke down a little while ago, like six months ago. And, you know, some, I remember when my car broke down in the US and I was working a regular job as a computer engineer. That was a big stress. I had to go out and buy a new car and there were all these issues. This time it was like, eh, okay. We went out the next day in cash. We just bought a new car. I mean, it's a Hyundai. I mean, we don't, it wasn't fancy, nothing like that, but it wasn't something that like I spent any mental or emotional energy on. So that's what you do is you start with a why and be very clear about it. There's no wrong answer here, right? So if you want to be filthy rich and have a private jet, that's totally okay. If your why is to help as many people in the world as you can, that's okay as well. There's no moral judgment in here. You have to be honest with yourself. For me, it's a reduction in stress. It's not a physical thing. I, heck, I have t-shirts I've had since college 20 years ago. Um, then you break it down, you know, into goals of, okay, 
in order to do that, if it's financial, I need to be at this place in a few years, this place in a few years, then you break it down to smaller objectives from there. Um, I don't recommend breaking it down too much detail for anything more than two weeks. So that's what I do for the next two weeks. I know exactly what I'm doing every single day for the next two weeks. Um, after that, there's too many variables in place that I'm like three weeks from now, I don't know what I'm going to be able to do. So I've done that for years now. So you get all the way down into that, all the way down to what we were talking about before. That helps me break down my day and know what I'm going to be doing every single day. Because I don't, it's like those CEOs you hear about that wear the same clothes every day. They don't have to think about it. I don't wake up in the morning and think about what I'm going to do today. It's already written. I know what I'm going to do. I just get up and do it. I mean, you know, I don't waste mental energy in figuring out what I'm going to do. I know that. I know I'm with that for the next two weeks. Um, and I'll always know that for the next two weeks. So that's kind of part of my process. Okay. And during this process, like, you know what you need to do in the two weeks. Yet mm -hmm. we have also decision-making steps uh, in between that, uh, during that period, right? Uh, mm -hmm. When you come out uh, with making a decision, how, how do you decide? How do you decide wh where to go, what, what, uh, what to prioritize and what to work on? I stu this is part or... of this is actually where I'm laughing because this is actually in my manifesto. One of the things I put in my manifesto is am I going to be doing some, am I doing an important task that I enjoy to avoid an imp more important task I don't enjoy? Oh, that's one of the questions that's I ask beautiful. Every, yeah, that's beautiful. That's a golden nugget. Yeah, yeah. You guys aren't looking, you can't see it because it's a podcast, but literally it's one of the ones on the bottom here on my notebook that I do every single morning. Um, and that's exactly it because. I don't always succeed, but that tends to be a tendency for a lot of people. So you make your to-do list. If you do it right, most of those tasks should be important. But there's always the stuff that like, ooh, that's fun. Oh, that's, you know, I got to file my taxes. No, I don't want to do that. So I just have to ask myself when I'm going through the tasks to make sure what is the most important and am I trying to avoid it? Because it's very easy to stay busy with something else to avoid doing the most important thing in your business. Mm -hmm. I have to ask myself that constantly not to fall into that trap. And I still do fall into that trap sometimes. Sometimes <laughs> I'm like, oh, let me just do this for five minutes. And then I spend the whole day doing it. So um, yeah, I'm still working how, on How that. do you avoid it? Uh, do you have any ideas how, what helps you to get back into the rhythm of doing what has to be done? That manifesto that I'm talking about. So mm. combined with that manifesto, I have my to-do list every single morning, right? So what I do is when I'm writing the manifesto, I have the to-do list up open in front of me. So as I'm reviewing it, I'm asking myself that question to become conscious about it. Because generally when we cho choose the easier fun task, it's not like a consciously, I'm going to do that fun task to avoid the non-fun task. We don't make that conscious thought in our head. You're just like, oh, that's important too. Let me do that. But it's really because you're trying to avoid something else. So if you ask yourself, when my to-do list every day has three main tasks on it. It's not like I have a hundred things on it. There are three things I need to get done today. And I ask myself that question about every single one of them, which one's the most important, regardless of which one I enjoy. And that's the one I start with. All right. Um, tell a little bit more about the manifesto. What's, what is it? Is it like a guide rules uh, of how to live life or what's it about? So let me bring it up so I can, yeah, so I can actually remember it better. There's two sections in the manifesto. Um, and I won't take credit for this. I work with a business coach called Itamar Marani. He's a former special forces in the Israeli army, all the rest of it. So they do a lot of this stuff in the military over there. I believe I'll pitch, I'll pitch Itamar. So if anybody's looking for coaches, he was the youngest air marshal in Israeli history. Um, and he was also a bodyguard for a Russian oligarch for like four or five years. So he has some really interesting stories to tell. He was like the head bodyguard for like one of the richest people in the world for a while. Um, so it's broken down into two parts. So I have a manifesto. 
that part, I have, well, looks like about 15 different things there where I'm trying to recenter who I am, um, who I think I am or who I perceive myself to be. A lot of us actually do not look at ourselves correctly. And that was, this is a big thing I'm still struggling with, right? So I've been lucky to have a successful business as of like to say seven years ago, was at seven figures. I had never been to a conference before in my life when I built that business. So I went to my first conference thinking I did not know anything. And I ended up going to this conference. It was about 40 or 50 people. And I found out I was the only person there with a seven-figure business. And they're like, wow, a seven-figure business. That's amazing. But I was just like, wow, I'm a beginner. What are you talking about? I don't know what I'm, you know, I don't know what I'm talking about. I've been to other conferences where people had nine-figure businesses. And yeah, compared to them, I really don't. But statistically speaking, if you run a seven-figure business or almost a multi-seven-figure business, you're doing pretty well. That puts you like at the top 1% of businesses um, out there. I had trouble accepting that right? That I actually vaguely knew what I was doing. And it's a work in progress for me to reconcile that fact, reconcile that fact with myself. So the manifestos has things like my weaknesses. I go over it. Um, let's say I don't avoid my rejection story is number two on my manifesto um, because I'm a people pleaser. It took me a while to realize it. And I don't like putting myself in situations where people will turn me down, mm-hmm. but that's been holding me back. So I put that in the manifesto every morning. Another thing when this is what we're talking about is I focus on completing one task at a time, shiny object syndrome. It's one of my weaknesses, right? Where you start something and then like, Ooh, let's go over here. So I put it in my manifesto. These are all things I should focus on the day. So there's about 15 things I hear. I have controlling my mindset, all the rest of it. Then at the bottom, I have, I have five questions that I ask myself every day just to recenter and remember what I'm doing. So one of you know, I'd be happy to share them with them. Um, is there anybody who can help me what I need done today? Another one of my weaknesses when I started off, I had the nobody can do stuff, nobody can do this as well as me syndrome that a lot of entrepreneurs have, right? Yeah. I'm getting over it, but sometimes reaching out to my staff or even friends solve problems in five minutes that I would spend a week on, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, all I have to do is ask them instead of me researching and trying to do it myself. They're like, no, 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 just do this. So I have to remind myself it's okay to ask for help. Mm-hmm. I don't, that's not a sign of weakness. Um, we talked about, you know, how can I? Oh, well, this is a different one. Yeah, am I doing the tasks I enjoy to avoid important tasks I don't? Um, how can I refra- reframe uncomfortable tasks? That's one of the reasons a lot of people avoid them, right? If you have to fire somebody, unfortunately, I've had to do that before. Wow, that can waste your entire day, right? I'm just mental energy of anticipation. I'm going to fire him today at four o'clock. Your day is gone. If you can reframe that, like, okay, this job is not really a good fit for this person. So while they might be sad today, this might be the opportunity they need to really find their passion in life. Just as an example, you can reframe things. And I'm like, oh, well, yeah, then, you know, it's not still not a pleasant task, but I'm not going to spend all day worrying about it anymore because in the long term, this is the best for the best. Mm. So I ask myself that every day. And then I have a few things there about, you know, my diet and my, my rest habits as well, because you need, if you're not eating well and if you're not resting, your productivity goes down. So that's basically it. And I spend it every morning as part of my kind of morning ritual is I rewrite those every single morning. It takes about one page in my notebook mm-hmm. and I spend about five, 10 min- minutes just writing that every single morning. And I've been doing Beautiful. that for a few months now. And that, that's like refocusing on what's super important to your life. That's it. That's it. You're programming your brain, right? If you keep on doing it and I'm not very into like the new age stuff. I mean, I was very, very hesitant. I'm an engineer by training, right? I'm like, there was, a, there was a comic or a comedian in the United States on Saturday Night Live like 20 years ago. And one of the things he'd go on there and he would say something in the mirror. He's like, 
you're a good person. Yeah, 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 yeah. People like you, right? And that was my idea of what this was. And I'm just like, yeah, I'm not going to stand in front of the mirror, smile and say, gosh, darn it, people like me. I mean, what kind of ridiculousness is that? Um, but again, my coach is does martial arts like me and former military. And he's like, they've shown in the military that this kind of stuff works. You're yep. training your brain to think these kind of things. So it's not new age. It's more like martial arts. It's like you're repeating something you're repeating science, that punch right? every single day. It's exactly it. So I'm like, I'll give it a try. And I've actually found that it's, it is working. I was surprised. I was like, I'm skeptical, but I'll just do it. And I, I'm finding I really, it starts your day on the right foot. It's the first thing I do in the morning. So I started off there. I used to wake up and watch the news. That's not a good way to start your day because the news never has good news. It's all about, oh, there's a war, there's a plague, there's, you know, the stock market crash. That's news. That's how I started my days. Not anymore. This is how I started. I don't watch the news except on the weekends anymore. Mm, beautiful. So uh, let's look at the life planning. Do you have something like an ideal life scenario where you want to be and you're striving towards? And uh, how does that look like? Another great question and actually ties exactly into what we were talking here because part of the morning ritual is this visualization of seeing myself there. And if anybody who's done it, again, I was very skeptical of this whole new, new age foo-foo stuff. But you'll, this one's very easy for you to try. Sit down, close your eyes, and imagine the life you dream. Just imagine you're there, right? With your family, financially secure, all the rest of it. I guarantee you, you're going to feel great. Just the, I, the, the, the act of thinking it, your endorphins are going to get going. You're like, oh my goodness, it feels great, right? I'm, I don't know, sitting on the beach, and I have my yacht, and my wife and my kids are playing, and their financial feels even talking about it now. I feel good doing all of that, right? So for us, I have a very clear vision of where we want to be. Um, financially, I know how much money we want to have in the bank account to be financially stable. And my second act, what I'd like to do after entrepreneurship is I do want to start a social enterprise um, to give back. That's how I came to Mexico. I quit my job in the United States and I volunteered for two years for almost no pay in Southern Mexico. Those were two of some of the best years of my life. I'd love to be able to do that. I'm not so idealistic that I would do it when I have a family to support. But if I can get to a point where financially I don't have to do it, I'd love to go back to that. Mm. And that's where we want to be. We want my wife and I want to start a charity that helps people start, start online, a social enterprise, which helps people start online businesses, but focus generally on the developing world. Just because I've su successfully multiple times built six figure and seven figure businesses online, right? So I have a system that more or less works. But you don't even have to dream that big. If you live in the Philippines, where you know the mother's my mother's side of the family is from, if I could teach you, if I told you you can work a year, and by the end of this year, you're gonna have a business that generates $500 a month. Alan, if I told you that, would you sign up for that? Probably not, right? You work for a whole year and you can make $500 a month at the end of it. You'd be like, I'm not paying you for that. Um, I can go to get a job at McDonald's and I'll make more than that, right? But if you're in the Philippines or many parts of Mexico, that's from poverty to middle upper class. Right. So there are all these millions of niche businesses out there that can make $500 a month, maybe even a thousand dollars a month. Right. Mm -hmm. That most people in the first world would never even touch mm -hmm. because it's not worth their time. So I, my dream is by the time I'm 15, we're fine. Hopefully we're financially stable by then is to start an organization where we go into the Philippines and Latin America and we teach people how to build these businesses because this will take people from poverty into middle upper class overnight. Um, so that's kind of, you know, our dream is that, you know, my family's secure, we don't worry about money and we're helping people to do that. Beautiful. And you center on that vision on a daily basis. 
every morning I spend at least a minute, just close your eyes and seeing myself what it's like when I'm there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, that's really fun. <laughs> I mean, you come on, it feels great to do that. Cool. To keep your daily activity productive, like waking up, you do your day plan. Uh, what are the systems that help you with that besides your journaling? So again, it's all about rituals, right? So I wake up in the morning. The first thing I do is wash my face, brush my teeth. I come down, uh, I have the journal and our cook brings, as I said, I have help. Our cook brings me my cup of coffee. Um, so, I, you know, I start drinking the coffee as I'm doing the journal. Then I go and meditate. I do my morning stretches. And then I, I don't check email. I don't do anything until then. Then that usually is about 7, 7.30. So by the time we're there, my son comes down. I play with him for 30 minutes. At 8 o'clock on the dot, I start working. Um, so that's my morning ritual every single morning, Monday through Friday. Weekends are different. Um, but Monday through Friday, that's what I do. It's, as a lot of people say, wow, that sounds boring. I'm like, well, uh, you know, the, the, but that's it. I don't think about it. I don't decide to do it every morning. So there's none of that. Well, I don't feel like doing it today. It's just something you do every single morning. That's, it's like putting on shoes or putting on my socks. Mm-hmm. It's not a decision. It's just part of my day. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about, let's talk about business systems, right? You have four businesses. What kind of uh, maybe software or products or systems that you have in place that help you to be productive there? Like keep track okay. of, your, of, of your goals, of your plans, of your team, communication. What, can, can you give some insights around there? Yeah. So for on the software end, on all my businesses, I use the same software suite because I'm not going to be flipping between different software suites for all the businesses, right? So for the product management, we use a software called Notion. Um, it's free up until about 10 users. And most of my businesses don't have more, even LiveLingua only has eight staff, so I don't have to pay for it. Um, so you can have multiple businesses there. So you have like a drop down. We use Slack for inner office communication and we use Google Drive for a lot of the um, online storage. We tried Dropbox, it had some issues. Um, so we use Google Drive for our online storage. And those are generally the systems that we use on the software side that are consistent across all of our businesses. For the, the way I run the businesses is great teams. So I don't launch, okay, there's an exception with the two business I'm launching in January, but I remember one's an accident. I generally do not launch a new business unless my other businesses are close to running themselves. LiveLingua, if I took a month off of LiveLingua, nothing would happen. I have an amazing team there that's going to run the business by themselves. I spend about an hour a day on LiveLingua just to make sure everything's going okay, everything's on plan. We're bringing in a um, COO in January, <laughs> probably an hour, reducing it to an hour a week, right? So it's, it's going to be her job to make sure that all everything's on the, you know, moving in the right direction. It's just my job to pick the direction, right? As the CEO, I'm like, this is where we're going. And I go out there and promote and I talk to people on podcasts about it, but I'm not going to be that worried about the day-to-day operations. That's how I do it. So you get to a business at that point, then you build another one. Get it to that point, build another one. It's not a matter of, you know, building four at exactly the same time. That wouldn't work. Even building two at the same time right now, there's a few days where I'm like, wow, this is kind of overwhelming. I could so much to do because I'm trying to launch these two businesses at the same time. I'd much rather, you know, launch one this year and launch one the following year. It just didn't work out that way. Um, but the goal in both of those businesses, the reason I was talking about reinvesting is I'm reinvesting every penny to get them to that point even more quickly, right? I'm not going to take anything out because I want to get them there by the end of next year to a point where maybe I'm maybe not full-time, you know, one hour a week, but at least I'm only not spending 10 hours a day on each one of them, right? It's yeah. just maybe a few hours a day on each one. Mm. Uh, that's mm-hmm. a great idea. Um, and uh, I've this year I've been over and over again uh, hearing this idea that we need to like free our business from the shackles of our time, and otherwise it won't be able to grow because we will always be limiting the business growth with our time. 
And if, if something goes wrong in uh, any part of life, it takes away from our business to be able to run and be sustainable. And mm -hmm. building out that team is uh, a powerful asset for the business to grow and prosper. Um, that's a really well, uh, interesting thought. We're going to touch upon how to make that happen in a moment. But additionally, in terms of business growth uh, from your activities, can you pick out something that you do on a monthly, on a weekly and a daily basis that is like truly pivotal to your business growth? Like this is a no negotiable that you know that delivers results and you must do it. It's a good question. And I don't know if I actually have an answer to that one, like a pivotal one, just because it's as our business moves around. Um, but on a high level, on a monthly, it is those monthly goals that I set up. It's pivotal, setting those goals, not mm. that there's a specific goal every month. It's setting those goals that is pivotal to moving the business forward because that's how every, you know, my team's pretty small, eight people for the full-time. We have 150 staff, you count the contractors, but the eight people are full-time. That's how I make sure everybody's moving in the same direction. On a weekly basis, I have a weekly meeting with the core team members. Um, and we run it a little like, I've been in masterminds for a long time. So I run them like I run, like mastermind meetings are. It's an accountability group. It's not really a meeting. So the way that we do it is you say, hey, you made commitments last week to do these. How do you do? And what are your commitments for the next week? That's it. That's all our meetings are. Um, if we need to talk about details, you can have one-on-ones with me, but generally that's good enough. That's what we do on a weekly basis. I don't really do the daily stuff because it's too small of a time frame, in my opinion, to for pivotal stuff. Uh, maybe when you're starting off, it's very different. Like in a startup phase, day to day is pivotal. When you have an ongoing concern, which is you know a seven figure business, it's an ongoing concern. It's not about the day to days. It's about the you know week to weeks, month to months, year to years that you're concerned about. So generally, our planning is more on that scale than on the micro of the this today you got to do this today you got to do that. Other yeah. than the discipline I'm talking about, I do that yeah. every day, right? That's critical to my day. Um, if we're talking about, like you mentioned, for a stable business, seven-figure one, it's all about the weekly, monthly, yearly strategy, the vision, and mm -hmm. staying focused. For people who are in a stage of solopreneurship, uh, what would you say a daily activity would be that they should super focus on? Okay, that's and I can actually relate. Remember, because I'm also I'm launching two businesses as a solopreneur right now, even though I also have you know a seven figure business we're running on the side. So the thing that I that I focus on there's well there's two different phases, right? If you're pre-launch, it's different than if you're launched. So I'm in pre-launch right now. So the thing that I focus on is getting the MVP, the minimum viable product for my product, up and going. Everything you're doing should be focused on that. Um, a lot of people are like, well, I don't have my email sequence written yet. I'm like, that doesn't matter. Your website's not up yet. Do you care if there's an email sequence? Nobody's visiting. You have no traffic whatsoever on your website. Get the product up. Whether your website's an e-commerce store, whether it's a SaaS product, whether it's a, you know, a productized service, doesn't matter. First thing you do in the online space, which is where my expertise is, is get that website up there offer it. I don't care if the website doesn't look perfect. I don't care how, you know, if there's spelling mistakes on the homepage, nobody reads anyway, just get something up there so you can start doing it. So that's generally the first priority when I'm launching every business. Priority number two is marketing. So as soon as that's up, the next thing you have to do in the business, and this is what I'm going to start in January is market, market, market. You have to figure out whether anybody wants your product as quickly as possible, your product, your service, whatever it is, as quickly as possible with as little money spent as possible. So you can figure out whether it works or not. If within 12 months, you're not making any kind of significant gains on there, sorry, this might be your baby. This might be your dream. Kill it. Um, this is the business is probably not working. 
at least in the bootstrap phase. Again, you have 10, 20 million dollars to throw at the problem. You can probably, you might be able to get past that phase. Most of us don't. And arguably, if you have 20 million dollars in the bank, what are you doing? Doing a startup. I mean, like, you know, you can spend your money in much better ways. You should, you could be investing in a thousand startups with that much money, right? Um, so those, that's generally my my process, right? So we're going a little off track with that, but my business process is I pre-vet ideas by looking um, if anybody's looking for them. So you go into Google keyword tools and I see if anybody's searching for the product that I want to sell. If nobody's searching for it, I'm like, what am I selling, right? Nobody looks for this. Um, we're not the iPhone. We're not Tesla. You know, we can't create new products that nobody even knew they needed and then start selling it. Some people can. It's not my space. I see if anybody's looking for it first. Then I build the basic MVP, the minimum viable product. Then I market for the next year. If at the end of that time, it doesn't work, then I I have plenty of other business ideas and I think most entrepreneurs out there do as well. So don't worry, you got another idea on your list and start working on that. Got you. That's a great advice. Um, now, moving on to actually growing and sustaining the business and removing the time limitation of your own time for the solopreneurs and entrepreneurs out there, what can you suggest in the framework of outsourcing tasks what kind of advice can you give like super practical because uh, usually we hear a lot about uh, that yes outsourcing is important but what kind of advice can you do to actually efficiently do that great question again and this is i actually have a process for it but i didn't realize it until recently that it was a process until somebody actually asked me that so i have an exact process when i'm starting of how stages of hiring Mm. Um, that I go through when I'm building a business. And the stages actually involve geographies. So the first stage of hiring is when you're making an extra 500 to Um, $1,000. That means you have enough money to get a VA, which can get repetitive administrative tasks off your plate. Generally, in my experience, that's in the customer support and email areas, whether it be scheduling, depending on your business model, right? For that, I go to the Philippines, Um, primarily because I'm half Filipino and I can speak their language, right? So I, I go to the Philippines, but you can also go to almost anywhere in Southeast Asia works pretty well for that. Um, that's the first stage you hire. I would recommend to anybody starting, get that off your plate. Don't answer email. You know, you don't have to answer emails or basic customer support because trust me, if you do it for a year or two, you've probably gotten the same questions like a hundred times. Sit down, write up an SOP and a standard operating procedure so that the people in the Philippines can follow it and hire them to do that. Um, People at that price range, around $500, if you find a good one, they're good at following instructions, but do not go in with the expectation that they're going to own it in the sense that, yeah, if something's not on the SOP, they're still going to come to you for help. That should be your expectation. Don't get annoyed when they come to you for help because you're paying $500 a month for somebody for full time. They're not there. You might get lucky. You got a rock star. They're going to own it. You know, they're going to do it. But chances are you're just going to have somebody who's going to get the job done, clear up your plate a little bit. That's stage one for every entrepreneur that's hired. You make an extra 500 bucks. That's where you go. Stage two. And one of my favorite hacks is once you get to the point where you can pay about $2,000 a month for a staff, $1,500 to $2,000 a month, depending on the staff you're going for, you look for expats. So if you're in the United States, the one I look for is expats in Latin America. So, you know, Americans who live in Mexico or in Argentina or in Chile, right? Generally, you want something called a trailing spouse, which means they're married to somebody who's in that country um, and means they're probably going to be stuck in that country. What you're able to do with a $1,500 to $2,000 salary is you can hire people who 
would probably maybe you know be high 80 90,000 100,000 dollars in their home country but since they're in Mexico they're never going to make that salary $2,000 a month is more than an engineer working at Google in Mexico City makes so you're offering this to somebody in you know somebody in an American somebody from the UK in Mexico you can work at home uh, you can spend time with your kids you can the flexibility I don't care if you go out for lunch for an hour you know it's most of these are kind of you know higher level tasks than you give the Filipino VA, you're giving them an amazing salary, but you're saving 50% at least on what you would pay them if they were in their home countries. An example I gave us for a while, I had an executive assistant who was from Belgium, half Belgium, half Canadian. She had a master's in organizational, um, what was it? Organizational, not behavior, but business organization, right? Uh, um, and I paid her $1,200 a month full-time to be my executive assistant. She spoke like four languages, you know, what was the thing? She lived in Guadalajara, Mexico, and she liked to go on surfing on the weekends. I'm like, okay, I don't care if you're surfing, in, you know, you surf in the morning, you work for me during the day, and you surf again in the afternoon. That doesn't matter to me. And it weighed way more money than she would ever make as an assistant anywhere. And forget about her having being able to surf, right? I mean, she would not have been able to surf, let alone make this great income. She was, you know, upper class by Mexican standards to do it. Mm-hmm. So that's my second level. Third level is hiring the traditional way. Once your business gets up there and you want to kind of place yourself in your country, the United States, for example, then you can hire people into your business. But that's at that point, you can hire somebody who knows HR to help you get the business to that level. Because once you're there, you're talking about paying for their medical, their social security, their insurance, all the rest of it. But you can afford to pay for an HR company that kind of takes care of all of that. So you're not messing up and getting into trouble with the IRS or whatever the tax agency is in your country. Those are the steps in every business I built. Super. That's that's super valuable stages. Can you tell also how do you actually find them? Like, what is the process of searching for them? Okay, so yeah, it again varies depending on what your what level you're at. So if you're looking for a Filipino VA, I use a website called OnlineJobs.ph. Um, you go up there, you post a job, do the standard hiring process. So the first one I do is I send them email questions. That filters out about half of them. Most people don't even bother answering. Um, not even, te- you know, even if they're not technical questions, you just kind of send out the email questions over there. Number two is you give them a technical task to complete, whether it's customer service, you give them examples, how would you answer these emails with the assumption that they don't know your business that well, but you're just kind of trying to see how they deal with the situation. If it's more programmers, then I give them a programming question, whatever it is. Then that usually gets me down to two or three people I want to interview, you know, from a big pool gets down to a three, I interview them and then they always come on in a three-month trial. So if there's like two people you're not sure about, especially the $500, $700 range a month, you can afford to, you can usually negotiate, hey, I'm going to pay you guys $400 for two of you for 30 days. And whoever does the best gets the $600 salary at the end of it. Um, but I need to see how you guys work out. So I've done that quite a few times as well. So that's on the lower level of mm-hmm. the hiring. For the other one, for the hiring, the expats, Facebook, actually, I go, you can look for expats in and just type in Venezuela, Colombia, something like that. There are groups all over the place. And they're happy for you to put job posting as long as you're not trying to sell something, right? So like, look, I have a job. I'm looking for somebody who's got these qualifications. Here's the application. They'll let you in. Um, you post there. And that has worked really well for me to find people at that level. And when you get to the higher level hiring in the US, honestly, at that point, it's networking. I want recommendations. I want. I ask my friends who run businesses and the rest of it. Do you know anybody? Do you know anybody else? It's never let me down. Um, you know, I always... If I have a friend who's a programmer, I'm like, I know you're not hiring, but do you have any good programmer friends who are looking? He'll always send me four or five. I need a manager. You talk to a friend who's a manager, he'll have four or five friends to do it. That's what I do for the highest Super insights. Super insights. Thank you. 
Um, for the first hire, as you mentioned, right, the first hire any solopreneur can make is a VA, offload all the major tedious routine things. Administrative the stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> got you. And um, let's look at uh, the topic of marketing and sales. And in the buyer's journey, there's always a, uh, a certain point we have to focus on that is one of the most important ones. Like what in your experience is the most important step in the buyer's journey and what can uh, the entrepreneur do to maximize it? Okay, so... In my opinion, the most important step in the buyer's journey is the moment they're about to put that credit card in or give me, give me their emails, right? Right before the sale is to me the most important step because that's everything else in your buyer's journey, everything else in your funnel is to get them to that point, right? And to lose them there, wow, that's frustrating, right? I've done all this work to get you to pull out your credit card and I don't know, you make it harder or something like that to put in the credit card. Mm -hmm. The marketing, that's why the marketing method that I like the best is search engine optimization. One, mm -hmm. because if you're bootstrapping businesses, it's free. It's Boring, it's repetitive, but you don't have to actually pay money to be number one in Google in the organic results. It takes a lot of work to get there. The second reason is you're catching people at that point in their buyer's journey. Um, so I'll use my example for LiveLingua.com, right? So we rank top in the world for Spanish tutors online. If you're searching for Spanish tutors online, it's because you're looking to hire a Spanish tutor online. You're already at the end of the sales funnel. It's not that you're learning Spanish and you're like, oh, this would be kind No, no, no. You're looking for a tutor right now. And I catch you in Google because we show up at the top right at the end of the sales funnel, almost to the point at the point you're ready to give me your email. Mm. You know, in our case, we give you a free trial lesson for 30 minutes. So you don't give us a credit card right away, but right at the point where you're giving, you know, you're, you're like, okay, here's my email. Give me that. Give me that Spanish tutor online that I'm looking for. Um, so for me, SEO is the marketing method for anybody who's again, bootstrapping. You have money thrown into Facebook ads and Google ads. That's great. I've never started a business with money before. Um, I've hit or miss with Google and Facebook ads. You know, they work half the time. They don't. And if you don't have, you know, a few thousand dollars, this waste, it's not really what I'd recommend for somebody starting off. SEO is, but SEO like business is the long game. If you want to be on the first page of Google, depending on the market you're in, it's minimum six months. If it's competitive, one to two years before you start kind of getting to the top of the organic results. Mm -hmm. Um, you have to go in mentally prepared for that. So you, you know, it should start as a side hustle. If you're using SEO as your methodology where you do like 15 minutes of SEO work every single day for two years. And by then, boom, you have free traffic. And now you can sell to these people. Um, can you give any ideas? Profit. Can you give any ideas in terms of uh, uh, what can an entrepreneur get to know about SEO to at least if they are not even a techie to what yeah. they can do? So, I mean, SEO, search engine optimization, you don't actually need to be a techie. It's not really a tech stuff. Um, it's covered in a little bit of a tech cover because when you read like these experts, they always go into, well, your schema needs to be this way or your H1 tags have to be this way or your internal backlinking anchor text should have the rich, you know, should have a naked links for 30, you know, they can use jargon like that all the time. I've been doing SEO for 14 years, like by SEO standards, I'm like, you know, you know. I'm old, you know, in the SEO world. But generally, SEO is broken down into two parts. One is optimizing your own website. That's about 
The other part is being building links back to your website. So people mm. are linking to your website. That's the 80% of it. Um, if you just starting off, because we could do a whole podcast on SEO. That's a whole, I mean, there are books, there are thousand page books written on this. What I recommend is look up the at moz.com, uh, moz.com. They have a 50 page SEO primer. That'll teach, it's the you know Pareto principle, 80-20 rule. That'll teach you the 80% you need to know in 50 pages. Uh, read that up, you know, you Basically, it's going to tell you what to do on page to optimize your page, and it's going to go over 10 common ways to start building links back to your website. Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, the overview is you need to have something worth linking to. So create some cool content, whether it's an article, videos, podcasts work as well um, for link building. The reason I you know, appear on a lot of podcasts, I'm getting a link back right from all of these. That's SEO. I'm doing SEO by appearing on podcasts on my website. There are multiple techniques. You just find one works that works for you and your industry. We touched upon self-awareness. We touched upon self-development. And uh, do you remember a, a tool or a system that you encountered throughout your life that gave you a massive boost to your self-awareness? Throughout my life, let's see, what was the... Probably meditation. You know, I'm relatively new to it, like four or five years ago. Um, and the reason was, you know, my wife and I went through some medical issues about four or five years ago, and we were looking for a way to deal with stress. So we went, we, we walked the Incan Trail, and then afterwards we went to Lake Titicaca up there in uh, Peru, and we went to this like three or four day silent retreat for meditation. They said it was for beginners, and it's really, you know, they're like, oh, cool. And so we go, there's like 11 or 12 of us, none of us had really meditated before. I had from martial arts, but we do like two or three minutes at the beginning of every practice in two or three minutes at the end, so nothing major. Um, and the first day they're like, okay, now you can't talk, sit down. We're going to meditate for an hour and a half. And all of us were like, what? <laughs> I'm like, you know, this is, we've never meditated before. They didn't give us any instructions. They're just sit comfortably, breathe and meditate for an hour and a half. We did that for three days. So we meditated six hours a day for like three or four days. It was a lot of work, obviously, because, you know, this is just, but the way we felt afterwards was great. I mean, it was really relaxing. And one of the cool things about it was like throwing you in the deep end of the pool, coming home and meditating 15 minutes a day after that was just like, like that 15 minutes went by like that. Right. Um, and I find it's a great way to center yourself, be with yourself for like 10 minutes a day in our busy life today with social media and cell phones. We're never just like sitting there quietly. Right. Mm -hmm. There's always, if you're quiet for a second. I challenge you not to pull out your cell phone. We do it. We don't even think about it, right? Before we even know it, we have our cell phone or hands on Facebook, Twitter, or whatever, you know, checking the news. Just sit there, breathe for 10 minutes, and you'll be surprised at the effects. Um, there's science behind it, too. You can read it, um, you know, the neurological effects of it. But that's kind of been a really nice hack. It's more on the relaxing, less on the work. But if you're relaxed, you work better. Have you ever encountered any personality typing theories, tools, or systems? Did you touch upon them or not yet? Uh. So I've taken it, right? I mean, I think I'm an int J uh, on there. And I actually know the owner of 16 personalities. He makes a lot of money off that website. Um, but the science behind it is quote unquote pseudoscience, even though there is, there is studies that show it works. In fact, at LiveLink, we're implementing a system where we work with a psychologist, where we actually do that for your learning style. And we're going to be pairing you up with a teacher based on that. To me, that has, none of those systems have made a huge impact on my life as far as, you know, the way that I've chosen to live. Um, meditation, one of the things about meditation, it gets you to know yourself better. 
And if the better you know yourself, the better you're able to make decisions about yourself 100%. in your life. Um, and that's really been one of the revelations for me is, again, I thought I was this guy who didn't know what they were doing. I was the shortest kid in my class when I was growing up because I'm, you know, I was Filipino. But then I realized it was because I was actually two years younger than anybody in my class because they skipped a grade. Yeah, that actually makes a big difference when everybody's 12 years old and you're 10 or they're 18 and you're 16, right? But I always thought I was short. I'm six feet tall now. I mean, I'm not a giant, but I'm not. It took me until I was like 30 to realize I'm like, I don't think I'm actually that short, you know, because I'm like, I'm tallish on my end, right? But that shows you the mental barriers that you have in place that I thought I was short for most of my life. It took me, you know, three quarters of my life to figure out I was not short. Mm. Um, and I think there's a lot of things you'll find in your life that you think the way you think about yourself is not really the way the world sees you. And meditation will help you realize that. Cool. Got you. Um, let's touch, touch upon um, growth of income. And as you mentioned, you know what it's like a life of poverty. Um, you've managed to outgrow it and build a successful life, uh, as successful to the extent as you perceive, right? Your own yeah. success. Um, let's touch upon a, an idea of crossing the barrier of a certain level of income. Uh, let's say when it was before, uh, when you were making, let's say, average wage, mm -hmm. uh, what was the number you were looking towards and you felt like, <laughs> wow, that, that's a big number? $100,000 a year. $100,000 I, I remember it distinctly. When I make six figures, that's going to be amazing. All right. Yeah. So 100K a year. Um, 120 actually, because it was 10,000 a month. Yeah, and yeah, I thought yeah. that would be like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you reached the 10K a month. You've done it stable for a year. How did you feel differently? I did. You, were, did you become a different person than you were? No. And unfortunately, my worries didn't end, right? So my, my number started a lot less, right? So when I, we started our first business, again, bootstrapping in Mexico, I remember thinking if we make $2,000 a month, it's what I was talking about, you know, middle, upper class lifestyle in Mexico. Ah, that'll be great. You make 2000. I'm like, huh, maybe it's 4000 where I'm going to feel like this is great. Right. So you make 4000. I'm like, no, no, 10,000. You know, that old number from the United States. I'll feel amazing. I'll never worry about money again. Nope. 20,000. I'll never worry about money again. No. I mean, the number just, you know, 30,000. No. Uh, you know, so it just never ended mm. until I started thinking about. And I'm still, you know, I'm still struggling with this, right? I mean, as I said, it is probably my biggest driving force is to worry about money. But if somebody realistically asked me, do you make enough to live? And I looked at it objectively, yes. Somebody actually asked me the other, you know, the other day when I was worrying about it. And I'm just like, yeah, I still worry about money all the time. It's like, if you ran out of money today and, you know, luckily our house is paid off, our car is paid off, we have no debt, Right. How long could you live? And I was like, well, we went into savings. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, like 23 years. <laughs> like, and you're worried about money? I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, that's the thing. Technically, I hope to live longer than 23 more years. So I would run out of money eventually. But that also means I have 23 years to figure out how to make some more money. Uh, you know, without us being on the street, without us starving. I mean, it wouldn't be like a high level lifestyle, but just bare basic pay rent, pay for food. 23 years, we wouldn't have to worry about it. Hmm. And that kind of change is starting to change my perspective, right? Because it's obviously we're making more than we need. Mm. Um, I knew that, you know, intellectually, I knew that. It's just taking, it's what we're talking about. It's taking a while for that emotional, that inside me to realize, yeah, you're not who you were 15 years ago, right? Making $2,000 a month and trying to worry, maybe worrying about paying rent and surviving for another month. You're not there anymore. But my, my you know, my lizard brain is still back there. 
and I'm still working on getting my lizard brain to catch up um, mm. with all of that. Got you. Um, in the sequence of actually getting that growth of income, getting that mm. breaking through those, uh, let's say, levels, uh, what actually influenced? Uh, the, was it a change in mindset? Was it the introduction of discipline? What influenced the growth? Okay, so the first big one was the uh, getting past the nobody can do it as well as me and hiring help. Mm. That was probably the biggest first four years. It was just me, just me and me and my wife, right? For a brick and mortar, I would answer the emails. I would do all of it because nobody can answer emails as well as I can, right? And nobody can do make websites as well as I can or whatever else I had in my head at the time. Uh, at that point, like a lot of people at that age, I read Tim Ferriss's four hour work week, discovered virtual assistants. And I'm like, okay, look, I hate answering emails. I've been, I do 10 hours a day of this stuff. Let me just give it a shot. I mean, you know, it's 500 bucks for us, but that was still a lot of money back then. But I'm like, let's just see what happens when I did it. I did it. And within three weeks, my life was changed. Now, don't get me wrong. I didn't, we didn't have a rock star VA. In fact, I think the first one lasted three months and I had to go and get another one and, you know, train them. And it, you know, didn't work out perfectly the first time. But I remember thinking those, you know, like two weeks into it, I'm like, wait, what do I have to do now? I'm like, because I just felt like I had nothing to do all day. That goes away very quickly because I filled myself up with, with other work. But at least it was a week or two where it took me work to figure out what I was going to do with my time. That was probably the most, you know, the biggest growth period. Because that year, um, our business doubled. The next year was when I hired people from Western cultures, which is the expats. Business went up 70%. Because suddenly I went from some, you know, people who could do an okay job to people who could do a great job at their different positions. And that was the next. So that goes kind of hiring steps have been what's grown my businesses. Um, yeah, I'm still trying to figure out how to get to that eight figure mark. So I'll let you know, I'll come back on once I do that. And I'll tell you what the secret was to get me from seven to eight figures. I have not figured that part out yet. Super. <laughs> yeah. And uh, also in the self-awareness there, there's part for self-care rituals. You mentioned that in the morning, one of the mo most biggest priorities is journaling, meditation, during the day, having some workout, uh, yes, anything absolutely. else that's, that you have maybe in a yearly practice, not just day to day, but mm -hmm. maybe you have a yearly practice. So, so what you engage every in? six months, I take one week off for a real a rest vacation. So there's two types of vacations out there and we've all been on all of them, right? I remember when I worked in corporate America and I got 10 days of vacation off every year, what I would do is I'd go to a new country and get to see as many things as I could in those two weeks. And I'd come back and I was more exhausted than when I left on vacation, right? Because I'm like, we gotta see something new every day. I still enjoy those kind of vacations, but those are not rest vacations. Those are tourist vacations. Mm -hmm. So every six months, what we do is we have rest vacations. My wife and I have two places we rent out, um, Airbnbs. So one of them's on a beach, which we go to in February. So it's not too obnoxiously hot because going to the beach in Mexico in the middle of the summer is, yeah, that's 100% humidity, super hot all the time. So we go there with a the week, barely has internet connections. Like our cell phones have like two bars on it. Mm -hmm. So I can check emails if I need to, but I can't really do work. And we try not to do work there. I spend, we pretty much go down there. We take our Kindles, we fill them up with books and we do nothing but read for seven days. For mm -hmm. the first three days, it's amazing. Fourth, fifth day is pretty good. By the sixth day, we start talking about work again. That's how we know we're recharged, right? It's like, mm -hmm. oh, I can't wait to go back and do this. So we do that. And then there's also a house on a lake we do, which is where we go in the summer uh, here in Mexico in a town called Pazcuero. We rent out a house, same deal, no internet. And we just go there and rest. So we do that every six months religiously. Um, this is my wife who got me to do that because I worked three years without vacation for a while. And I'm like, I don't need it until I went and suddenly 
I didn't realize how stressed I was until I went to a, on vacation. And suddenly my whole body went, I shut down. I slept like 15 hours. I mean, it was ridiculous. So now we do it every six months. I've learned for myself that that's my burnout point. At six months, I tend to burn out. So I need this one week recharge. Oh yeah, 52 hours each week definitely mm -hmm. deserves a recharge. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Wonderful. Now, touching upon the surrounding and its influence, as you said, one of the most uh, important things in your manifesto is uh, asking for help. There is a quote by Jim Rohn that your income is the average of the five closest friends. And the question for you is how important um, it was and is right, uh, your surrounding for your growth and success? It has been in the last four years. As I mentioned at the beginning, I was that guy in, the, you know, you know, that typical tech entrepreneur that works out of the garage and doesn't talk to anybody. I'm a computer geek, you know, by training. That was me for like seven years. Um, but then it, we had stagnated for a little bit. I started networking. It takes a little bit of work, kind of going to conferences and meeting people to meet people at the right level for you. Mm -hmm. And by right level, I mean, people who are slightly above you. Um, but not way above you. Like if you sat me down at a table with Elon Musk, Bill Gates and Richard Branson, yeah, I wouldn't know what they were talking about, right? I mean, they would start talking. I'm like, that's just a waste of their time and my time because I, that is just so much higher than me that I wouldn't know, you know what was going on. But if you, I have a seven-figure business and let's say I'm in a mastermind right now with everybody has actually mid-seven-figure businesses going on eight. I'm the guy with the smallest business in my mastermind. That's a perfect place for me to be. I love being there. I am the dumbest person in that room. Um, but it's a great, you know, they're not so far gone that I don't know what they're talking about. They're just talking about it at a, one or two levels above me. And that's what I'm looking for, for the opportunity to learn. Um, so that's masterminds has been my way of finding that generally joining masterminds with people you've met in person is what's worked out pretty well for me. Not just going and signing and paying for a mastermind online. Those have never worked, but I go to conferences. I meet people who, and we either say, Hey, let's start a mastermind together. Or in the case of this mastermind, I met half the group and there was this one guy who does masterminds professionally. He's like, you guys would be in a good mastermind. Let me put it together. This is the cost. I arrange it. He does all the you know logistical work, all the, all of that does the notes. Um, and we've been in it now for what, seven months. And we're, we've just, all of us just signed on for another year. So all of 2021, we're going to continue. And uh, in that mastermind, that's been a very productive way. So it's an accountability group plus kind of mentorship built in. What do you feel is uh, in the mastermind? Um, Taking into account, I believe so as well, that mastermind is one of the most powerful ways that we can grow as entrepreneurs as well. Um, what is the crucial aspect of a mastermind that makes it work? Besides, like, as you said, right? Uh, also, just let me a little bit add a little bit more flavor to this question. Um, as uh, you said, online didn't work for you. Offline did. And we meet online, but we met, you know, we meet our mastermind ah, is online, but okay. we meet, mm -hmm. we, we met in person, hung out at conferences, in some cases, multiple conferences with these people. So I knew them and I knew I got along with them beforehand. Mm -hmm. So there's two sides to, to a mastermind. The first one is trust because it needs to be a place where you're comfortable sharing everything about your business and being honest about it, because otherwise it doesn't work. If you only share 50% of your problems, they can't fix it because maybe those other problems are actually influencing the problems that you're talking about. Right. So you need to have this trust. Second one is hard to determine is the chemistry in the mastermind, right? Which is why I stress the importance of having met these people in person. And the people I hadn't met in person were friends of the people I met in person, right? Or people that they knew and they got along with. So chances are, if I got along with you, I'd get along with somebody else who got along with you as well, right? So that's kind of the thing. Because 
it becomes they become in a lot of senses your kind of close friends instead of just business people, right? Because you talk about everything in the mastermind, sometimes even personal stuff, business, we talked about work-life balance or separation of work and life. Yeah, there's no such thing. You know, you have trouble with your personal relationships, your work is affected. And, you know, you need to be able to bring that to the mastermind. Everybody in the mastermind that I'm in is, you know, in my age range, you know, between 30 to 50. So I'm kind of right in the middle, but, you know, they're married or have long-term girlfriends and many of them have kids. So they understand that the issues that we're going through and they're dealing with the same issues at home as they are, we are, and they're dealing with the same issues at work that we are. So the fact that we get along and we kind of have a similar background helps. I wouldn't recommend getting into a mastermind of, let's say if you're super liberal, being in a mastermind with all these people whose worldview is very conservative. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Not that one's right, one's wrong. It's just you, you guys yeah. wouldn't, yeah, the chemistry would not work. That's very hard to figure out. That's one reason why I've, you know, I've tried these online masterminds where they just kind of pick and choose and they throw you into a group. They never work out because that that's doesn't not work some, chemistry. Yeah, yeah. Chemistry is really, really hard to figure out um, unless you've hung out in person and you know these people and you're like, yeah, you're a cool guy. I'd love to be in a group. What about trust? You, uh, the chemistry, I fully understand where, where, where it is built from. Uh, what about trust? What is important to you believe in a mastermind to build the trust? Well, there's two ways to do it. In this mastermind, the beginning, everybody signed an NDA, right? Because though we knew each other from the conferences, um, we're also business people. Nobody took it personally that we had to sign an NDA, right? Because we're talking significant businesses here, right? People are going to be sharing secrets or problems that they have in their business, and they don't want you going to tell them your, their friends around. It. So I never start a business relationship without a contract. Nobody. I'm never, never going to be, hey, I talked to you, we're going to do it. And I think signing this NDA was a big key to this trust is that everything was written out. We all went in with the same expectations. We all went in knowing that everybody else here is serious Beautiful. about this trust factor, mm-hmm. right? Um, if anybody said, I didn't arrange it, but I'm assuming nobody, you know, nobody pulled out of it saying, no, I'm not going to sign an NDA. Because if somebody doesn't want to sign an NDA, it means what are you here for? You're really here to steal something from the rest of us? So I think that was a huge factor for us was just the NDA. We knew each other. There was a legal document behind it that we couldn't share everything. Not that any of us were really worried about it, but between those two things, we went in for the first one. We're like, yeah. And like always, it'll take a few meetings for people to warm up. It's not like everybody's going to open their heart in the first meeting. But since you get along, we joke and we cry and we, you know, we, we share our issues with each other. And usually it's one person who kind of takes the next step in the trust and goes a little deeper. Mm-hmm. And then now that he did it, I feel more comfortable doing it. Yeah. And then somebody else goes a little deeper. And you do that for like a, a month, two or three months. By then you're like totally open with each other and you share everything. Beautiful. Very beautiful. Uh, what do you believe uh, in terms of um, actually f- for the people who are not able to go to conferences and are not able to uh, meet up, right, I- in person with others? Which is everybody right now with COVID, right? So that's like everybody <laughs> in the world. So yeah. yeah. Uh, what would you say in terms of uh, actually getting into a, um, a mastermind? Would you, would you still recommend them to try What I would do is step number one is join an online community and try to find your mastermind through that. So there are people who arrange masterminds for you. So it's like, you know, the, it's straight into masterminds, right? I'm part of three, three communities online that I'm active in. And that's what I would recommend to start. My masterminds came out of those. It wasn't that I went in looking for a mastermind. I looked at, went in looking for a community. I tried a few other ones. They weren't really good fits. Um, but go online, try to find communities. There, there's communities for everything. Uh, you know, online. So go in there, go online to forum, 
see which ones the, where the people kind of fit like feel like your tribe. Most of the communities do have yearly meetups once those get up. So if you know to take it to the next level, you go to their actual meetup wherever it is in the world, see if it's a real good fit. Then mastermind would be the step after that. What I would recommend it just like the step number one. What do you search for them for the communities? Honestly, uh, most all the communities I found were through podcasts. Um, so wow. if you listen to a lot of business podcasts, a lot of those business podcasters have their own communities. So if you find some podcast you resonate with, look if they have a community. Um, so one of the big communities I'm very active in, I spoke at our conference last year, is called the Dynamite Circle. It's, it's tied to the Tropical MBA podcast. So I listened to their podcast. I'm like, these guys seem cool. They mentioned their community. I went and joined. You know, see online, it's there's usually a cost, like $30, $40 a month. You see how it is? Then I'm like, this is kind of cool. So I went to one of their, what they call their like, you know, X events, which isn't their main ones. It's like in the cities. And I like the people there. And I'm like, let me go to their main one. And I like the people there. And that's actually the big mastermind group I found was through that community. But it, you know, I was in there for two years, two, three years before the mass, two years before the mastermind came. It wasn't mm -hmm. day one. Here's a mastermind. Yeah. Got you. That's a good idea. Thank you for um, for directing before additionally in there because I was also thinking like I have a lot of projects uh, in in terms of building a community. Uh, I have a coaching business. Uh, I have a product a program that works specifically and helps entrepreneurs to build self awareness and actually using the uh, the podcast to create a community. Um, and uh, support uh, in that way, I believe that's a powerful thing. I need to look into that. Thank you for the idea. Definitely, definitely. There's plenty of people to do it. Pat Flynn does it. Uh, you know, Tropical MBA does it. Uh, let's see, Location Indie is another community I'm part of. So those these are more than, you know, travel entrepreneurship spaces. There's other ones. There's, there are e-commerce communities. Try to, you know, e-com podcasts. So I'm in one of those communities. Um, there's communities for everything. Cool. Um, all right. We've touched so many things. I, this is a value-packed episode. I super love uh, the conversation that we had. For wrapping up, I ask you to uh, give our listeners a, an additional nugget of thought about what should they do right now, listening to this episode, to get the most out of 2021 for their business. Okay. So again, it depends on where you are in your business, but I'm going to assume you haven't started yet. Let's say you're starting off and you want to do it. Just get started. Throw your website up there. So the tip is do it in WordPress, go to Bluehost, sign up for a Bluehost account, click install WordPress. It'll take you 30 seconds. Go to a website called themeforest.net, buy a theme, upload it, change the text. You're done. You can do this in an afternoon. Launch your business. The biggest reason most people fail in business is because they never start. So I challenge you to spend the next 24 hours and throw up your website. Just do it. Um, and I think that's, you know, that'll change the most amount of lives out there. Just start your website, throw it up. Super. And for those who are having, let's say, six-figure business or, or higher, what would you recommend for them to reflect upon or uh, start uh, looking at? Yeah, so the, for that one, it's actually the the opposite. It's start figuring out what part of your business generates the most of your income. You'll find the 80-20 principle applies and cut out the 80% that's not, you know, the 80% that's only generating 20% of your income. Get rid of it. Kill it. Throw it away and focus on that little bit that's doing it. It'll be a small dip in your income maybe for the first year. But the math that I share with everybody is if, you know, 20% is generating 80% of your income, Take that 20% up to 40%, you now have 160% of your income, right? Just by generating, going down by 20%. So yeah, that's what I recommend somebody in the six-figure. Figure out what part is generating most of the income, cut out all the peripherals and focus on that. Great. Thank you, Ray, for being with us. 
um, sharing your wisdom, sharing your experience uh, for everyone who is uh, looking to discover what Ray does even deeper. I'll provide all the information in the description to this episode. Thank you, Ray, for being with us. I wish you a happy holiday. And uh, yeah, thank you for being with us. Alan, thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure.